70 slides, so I'm gonna fly as much as possible, but don't worry about it. The idea is to, I'll stop at the slides that so-called take-home messages, there are probably five of them, and if you're gonna fall asleep, I only want you to take one, okay? So we'll tell so you to wake up. One <laughs> slide, yeah, exactly. So the goal of this lecture is what? Is not to end up with this number, right? <laughs> exactly, right? Okay, so definition, what's, what's RSI? Okay, everybody, you know, you guys know that, the idea is just to, you know, um, you don't have the time, patients are not fasting, you're not like uh, in an anesthesia setting, chances they have a full stomach, they're crashing and all that, all what you need is, you know, uh, sedation, neuromuscular blockage, and intubation with minimizing the risk of aspiration and procedural complications, right? So the, the key point just on that definition is you're doing two different things with RSI, right? What are the two things? You're putting the person to sleep and you're paralyzing them. So two different things and typically two different drugs at least to do that. So you have to realize you are taking away this person's ability to breathe when you put them to sleep, when you're paralyzing them. So you, as he'll go through, want to be completely prepared to manage that airway, to ventilate that patient, because you are doing something to a patient that's breathing, perhaps not effectively, but they're breathing, to take away their ability to breathe. And you're also putting them to sleep. So those are the two different things you're doing with RSI. Okay, now this is the first actually take home uh, slides and actually if you're gonna take one slide, this is the slide to take home, okay? So the seven P's about RSI, preparation and positioning, uh, pre-oxygenation, pre-treatment, anybody knows what's pre-treatment? Okay, James, go ahead. Sometimes you give us like a small dose of a drug. A drug, exactly. The idea is what? You're gonna blunt the um, you know uh, laryngoscope effects like you know hypertensive vocal cord spasm and all that and we'll talk about all of this right then paralysis and induction induction is going <coughs> to be sedation paralysis is either neuro uh, depolarizing or non-depolarizing uh, blocking agent then you know the protection how you protect we're going to go through the verb uh, uh, procedure and then placement and then post intubation uh, care okay now uh, what are the indication obviously you know these are actually some of them okay Protection, you want to protect somebody, somebody who's intoxicated or so. Or so. Oxygenation, whatever the reason, I'm just throwing some, um, you know, differentials, okay? But you have to think in your mind. For example, uh, you, you have somebody with cyanide toxicity you're going to treat. What's the treatment for that, real quick? Yeah, the cyanide kit, exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the uh, sodium sulfate and uh, nitrile. And they can cause methemoglobinemia. So you have to know that. And if the treatment for methemoglobinemia is methylene blue, exactly. So anyway, the other thing is failure to ventilation. People get tired, asthmatic, COPD, you know, altered mental status with like you know uh, dense um, you know CVA or MCA occlusion. And the most important thing is anticipated. You anticipate that patient is not going to protect his airway. For example, somebody who's an alcoholic or probably have something else on board with head trauma, chances, so you anticipate, so you jump on it before it's too late, okay? Now. And I just want to emphasize that these are guidelines. This is what you'll see written down, but you need to use your clinical judgment. So, for example, one of the guidelines, if the Glasgow is what? Eight or less, right? Supposedly that's an indication for intubation. Well, personally, I wouldn't necessarily intubate somebody. For example, I had a patient that I thought was GHB overdose the other day, and I thought she was protecting her airway just fine and we could monitor her. And intubation is not a benign thing. It's a very invasive procedure. So technically, her Glasgow was less, less than eight. She was essentially unconscious, unresponsive. 
but she was ventilating just fine. I felt she was protecting her airway if we kept her positioned properly, and I did not intubate her. So that's what's written down, but also use your judgment. If you have a trauma patient who's intoxicated and is going to have to go for CT, you know, there's a tendency in the trauma room that to say, oh, we'll just intubate them. Again, it's not a benign procedure, so to me, you have to decide in your head, how suspicious are you that they have intracranial pathology versus they're drunk and it's going to wear off and we can manage them maybe with a little sedation or uh, just by monitoring. And if I may add to that is reassessment. Remember, if you take a decision that says, I'm, I'm going to wait and not intubate, probably in two minutes you're going to intubate now. So come back and forth if you have any kind of, um, um, if, you, if you're not really sure, okay? Basically, you know, surgical airway, you're going in, you know, C-spine injury is not a contraindicated, we know that with stabilization, right? Uh, other absolute contraindication, if somebody has, let's say, a thyroid mass or somebody like, you know, structure and all that, you're not going to go ahead, you know the history at least, right? So, uh, relative, relative, a difficult airway or, or multiple facial trauma, facial trauma with, how do you guys assess with Lefort, right? Type one, two, three, we'll go through that, okay? Crash airway, somebody who's flat, right? Come in, cardiac arrest, gasping. You're not gonna do the paralysis, all that. Tubing, okay? Remember that. that. And I wanna really emphasize that point because we're so used to grabbing the drug box and pulling up drugs. If you have somebody who's in cardiac arrest, who's not breathing at all, they don't need drugs, <laughs> okay? You don't always need drugs to do your intubation. So the first question should be, should I be doing RSI? Okay, so crush airway, tube. Um, complication, you guys could add to that. Okay, many, many, many complications. Obviously, other stuff that you have to look for, which is somebody on blood thinning medication and all that, he has a mask, the last thing you want to go and, you know, muck around the airway, bleed, it's not going to stop because it's not something that you can tamper on, right? There's one more thing I wanted to emphasize on the contraindications. I know we talked about it yesterday, and I'm not sure if it was yeah. up there. And, and that was, um, if you want to just go back one, contraindications. Oh. If you cannot ventilate a patient, that would be a contraindication to rapid sequence, okay? Because again, you're taking away their airway, so you want to be sure that you can ventilate them once you've done that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so... That's under relative, yeah. Yeah, so complications, right? Now, P's, do you guys remember? So Eric, probably it's your job, the seven P's. So remember? Yeah. So yeah. preparation pre 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 oxygenate. Pre -oxygenate. So you're gonna tell us all the rest. Okay. Oh so pre-oxygenation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So pre-oxygenation, obviously you, you can phone a friend. <laughs> exactly. So why do you guys oxygenate before you intubate? Especially if you have a little bit of time. James. Um, because you want their uh, PAO2 to be five hundred instead of one hundred. Exactly. What are you doing? You're buying time, right? So and that time what we're gonna talk about it is basically um, you're gonna have the healthy gentleman, right? So if you give him like a 100% normal breather, you're gonna buy him that five, eight minutes if you don't get that tube before he desaturates below 90. Anybody else apart from a healthy gentleman, they're gonna desaturate young, obese, comorbid. Um, so if you're young and healthy, you're there, I'm not sure it's 10 minutes, but anybody else, look, you're gonna desaturate in two, three, four, five minutes, okay? So how do you pre-oxygenate? Patient. What does that mean when we say pre-oxygenate? When you're actually there doing it, how do you do that? Fifteen liters, non-rebreather non for okay. how long? Five minutes. Okay, and that's why if you think you may need to intubate somebody, for example, they're bringing over someone, uh, the paramedics are moving them into the gurney, and a lot of times you'll see the oxygen is off, but you know you're going to have to intubate. Make sure you get that oxygen on, so you start pre-oxygenating that patient. What if you don't have time? What if you have somebody who's just desaturating, you gotta intubate right away, you literally don't have that five minutes to let them sit and breathe and denitrogenate their own lungs. What can you do instead? Okay, bag them for, how do you pre-oxygenate with background mask? If you give somebody four tidal volume breaths, and if they're able to follow commands, you can actually have them breathe in, but usually you're in a situation where you actually have to do that. So that's an alternative if you don't have that five minutes, which sometimes happens. Okay, so two things. 100% on breather if they're breathing on their own, or uh, a back valve mask, okay? Now, the other P is? Preparation. preparation. Very good. Okay. <laughs> so, so the preparation, so, so things, things actually go hand in hand. So you're going to assess the airway, any fracture, is it difficult, is it not difficult, what do I need? 
Uh, if you need other equipment, if you need to call anesthesia, ENT, trauma, whoever you need to do. And then all your equipment. This is like ABC. You guys do this all the time in the emergency, okay? And then the, the problem is cannot intubate, cannot ventilate kind of situation, which we'll talk about, okay? Now, equipment, you guys know um, all of that. This is the bougie. You guys know all the bougie, right? You've seen it? You know? Actually, we'll, we'll show a picture about the ammo bag, the syringe, Stylite, ET tubes, multiple, you know, uh, size, uh, and, and tidal CO2. This is all your equipment, right? Your suction, um, um, your oxygen, your ammo bag, and all that, right? So this is a, a bougie, right? So the idea is what? The, the, the one of the end is actually, this is not projecting well, but it's like kind of 45 degree angulated, and that's what you're gonna pass through the cord, and then it's like a guide wire for your ET tube to go over. If anybody has questions, just please stop us. Okay? So Anwar, we yeah. have varying level of uh, experience here. Right. We have some uh, medical students, R1s, R2s, R3s, and faculty. So uh, maybe if you could take time to explain sure. when you get to this slide. Sure. Okay. Um, so equipment, yeah. I don't know. So one thing I'll just add on the equipment is uh, a lot of times I pe see people take the laryngoscope and pull the blade down so that the light is on and then just sit there and wait. What I like to do is wait until I'm ready to intubate to turn the light on on the blade because you never know when that bulb is going to go out and you don't want it to go out while you're in there. So that's just one little small trick. So these are basic stuff. So when you when you come in, you need to have your suction is working. You need to have your O2 already run up and running. Why? Because you need that reservoir inflated, right? And th this doesn't have a reservoir, but you need that reservoir is inflated. You need to check multiple sides, maybe two or three, multiple uh, tubes, inflate the balloons, make sure there is no leak. The last thing you want to go in is a successful intubation and your equipment doesn't work. And that's, that's a disaster. Uh, a tough um, you know, ET, uh, intubation where you don't have much of a space, then you need kind of guide wire and bougie is actually uh, one of them. Um, so. D the difficult airway, these are again some of the differentials, right? And some of the time if you, if the patient is kind of altered or sedated, take a look, okay? Do not sedate him more or do not, unless he's biting or fighting, and do not paralyze a patient where you don't know what's the airway. If you look and this is all friable and you might pass a tube and bleed that patient, it's very difficult for whoever is going to come after you and you're kind of guaranteed that you're going to go into a crime, okay? So take your time, probably sometimes you need to have a look with sedation, okay? Pickwakian wow. syndrome, oh, tough airway, <laughs> what's that? Micrognathia, right, what's that? Parkinsonism, all these kind of stuff that just looking at the patient when you prepare, you're going to say this is a difficult airway, okay? <laughs> what is it about the Parkinson's? That's, uh, oh, stiff, stiff. So we'll talk about positioning here, Dr. Langdorf, uh, later. When you have somebody like that, you know, you can't extend his neck, it's going to be really tough for you, okay? Um, this is the pathway again, you know. Um, and we'll go through that basically, you know, uh, how to proceed. Airway, you divide it like upper, middle, and uh, and lower. And so basically, uh, we'll, you'll go about the difficulties and any traumas, any swelling, any bleeding, and how do you assess as you uh, move along. Okay? Um, you know, if you're going to intubate, uh, let's say you don't have um, a C spine injury, nor rheumatoid arthritis, or any like kind of bony stuff that you might think you might fracture anything. Right, so you'll go ahead, you'll do the chin, chin lift, jaw uh, thrust, and you'll take it from there. Any difficult airways that you cannot, you know, you cannot uh, intubate or ventilate, you have to think of the collaterals, like, you know, glidoscope or, uh, or you know, you call it concert, or you go to combi tube or LMAs, okay? So have everything ready in any airway. Now just another thing I wanted everyone to be aware of is if you follow the sort of national discussion on this, there are, are some people who um, are very well known in airway management who are promoting using something like the GlideScope, some type of um, similar GlideScope or something similar for all airways that we do and saying that we should no longer be just doing the intubations like we commonly do them and using the GlideScope as a rescue device. So things are shifting in terms of what the standard and what the recommendations are. Okay, so Eric, our third P is? Third P is preparation. Preparation, very <laughs> good. Okay, <laughs> so preparation, right? So this is actually the same. It's just like cooking. Like this, <laughs> is, this is the second take home slides that we need, you need to learn. So the, the first one was actually the seven P's, this is the second one. So lemon, if you have a lemon, make a lemonade, right? 
So, <laughs> so lemon, L, look, E, evaluate, M, uh, malopathy, and we'll go through that, and then obstruction and neck. This and is let me just emphasize look, because I know there's a lot going on when we get trauma patients coming in, but our main job on those trauma patients is airway management. So before you help out the team by looking at the pupils or doing whatever else, Look in that airway, see are there any loose teeth, are there any dentures, do you anticipate a difficult airway? Even if you're not immediately uh, needing to intubate that patient, you might, things change very quickly. So you wanna make sure that you focus on that airway and, and actually take a look as one of the very first things you do. Okay, so back again, James, to our Lefort, right? So Lefort, when you, when you look, this is like Lefort type one, which goes like transverse through the mandula, right? And type two, it's gonna go like triangular in shape, and type three is, is gonna go trans um, orbital baby. And this is three, this is two, and this is type one, okay? All right, yeah, there you go. So just looking at the patient, probably moving, uh, I think I lost the, uh, uh -oh. can you work? Maybe I think because you moved the mouse. For the Lafort fractures, which ones would you not even try to intubate versus would you try or if well, like a, a one? So again, each patient is different. Right. Each situation is different. So let's say Lafort type one, right? But the jaw is like all over the place and you're having some bleeding, you gotta stop right there, right? Uh -huh. So it's it's case case based. But if you suspect that people have multiple injuries, right? It doesn't come like straightforward Lafort because the third yeah, yeah. the third skull is like smashed all over the place, right? So you never know, but if you you just looking at it, you have to get all your backups, right? And call all your counsel, okay? Yeah, one this of the contraindications that was listed just straight out of the book was uh, facial trauma, but right. I wouldn't necessarily consider that a contraindication. I've had patients with gunshot wounds with half their face blown off right. that are actually easy intubations because the airway anatomy is still there. So you really have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, and the question is, is there an issue with the airway anatomy? Okay. So I just want to uh, chime in too. There's two issues. One is essentially your look. So you're getting all that, in a Lafort fracture, you're actually getting all of that soft tissue and hard palate out of the way. It's really easy, but it's gonna bleed like stink. And you're gonna have double suction likely to try to get a good look at the port. So it's actually a better look than your usual uh, trauma patient. Everything is so floppy. It's right, yeah. you're just gonna be able to lift everything out of the way, but it's gonna bleed. Okay. Okay. All right. So now, through the look, right? Uh, one of the assessment is malopathic classification, and the other one is uh, thyroid distance. The three, three, two rolls. Anybody remember them? No. Okay. We'll go through it. So, so, let. Okay. Yeah. You, you want to say, Christian? Go ahead. No. I. We'll, we'll go over that. So. <laughs> so anyway, the lemon. Remember, look. So we're going back to the lemon, right? So lemon is look. And then E, evaluate, so how are you gonna do the 3-3 three, three, uh, roll, right? So the first one, ask the patient, three finger. That's the first three. The second three is actually from the hyoid to the, from the mentum to the hyoid, that's your three. And the third one, from the hyoid to the thyroid cartridge, so that's two. Okay, and I'll show you some pictures, okay? So this is the two from, um, from uh, the, the hyoid bone to, to the thyroid. And this is the third from the hypomentum to the um, uh, to the to the hyoid, right? And then the, the first three is actually if the patient can so so they can open their mouth properly, okay? And this is malopathic classification. It's very straightforward, one, two, three, four, okay? So this is obviously it's clear, you can see the uvula, right? You can see the folds, right? It gets difficult, three and four absolutely you know, it's kind of uh, difficult. But if you look at the uh, class one and just looking up what do you expect to see in the vocal cord, look at the difference. Right? Okay. So you can see the four the cords and you can see the folds and as you get to type four, it's really, really difficult ever. So just now in a crushing situation you're not gonna ask the patient, open your mouth, let's check this and all that. It's not gonna happen, right? But you can have like even patient gasping or something, you can have like a good look and anticipation. Oh I can't see anything. That's a difficult patient, okay? Um, I just for the students point out I'm where sorry. the vocal cords are oh, on the great one. So these are the vocal cords, okay? So the tube is gonna go right in between those two. So this is actually the epiglottis. Uh, 
maybe we can go later on to the other slide that I'll show you like um, you know transactional area. That's uh, that's much better, right? Again, the same thing, right? No, I'm sorry. Well, this is Eric. This is going back to, to you. Like, this is it. Uh, I'm saying like this is going back to assessing the error when it's difficult. If if you're having somebody, let's say, this is just look at you know looking at dentures, looking at stuff. You know, the last thing you want to go ahead and you know mock with that and just you know up to that you will have please like really help. So you gotta be careful now I know what to look for, how to you know separate that airway easily. Okay? And the lemon. Now we're to the old obstruction, right? So when do you get trigger? This is kind of difficult. I was shocked when I read it. You when you lose well, when you're up to only ten percent ten percent left from your you know uh, regular airway, then you get trigger. So you really really in a, in a narrow area when you get to that point, okay? Um, I'm not sure what's the hot potato voice, but you know, it's, it's there. Abscess. <laughs> I've never heard it. But anyway, neck mobility, C-spine. Uh, most important, people miss this all the time. Remember, people with rheumatoid arthritis, you can look at their hand. You can guarantee that they're really severe, that they have um, you know, uh, C-spine disease too. And a lot of them could fracture them. And a lot of them might have surgery before you, know, you get to them. So anyway. what device might you use if you had somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, for example? Yeah. A glide scope, they probably go, even if we don't use it all the time, I'd probably start with it in that pitch. And what else also? Midline stabilization. You treat it as actually C-spine injury, okay? If you know. Rheumatoid, remember that, okay? <laughs> all right. Now, the other P? Mm. Position. Uh, <laughs> position. Okay. So, the take-home message. There's a take-home message from the slide, right? There are three um, uh, lines that you actually need to get, or three, three views you need to get together. Oral view. Larynx and pharynx, right? Look at this this patient, right? Flat. It basically, every view is different. So one line. This is the oral. They're all over the place, right? The other one is not projecting well. I'll show you another picture, right? When you just extend the head and you flex the neck, look at the lines. They're now really kind of. You, you have a better view, and this is much better. So oral axis, laryngeal and pharyngeal. They're all over the place, right? This is a neutral position. Just putting the patient in a sniffing position, they're lining up beautifully. Now, you extend the head, look at that, three of them together. Remember this? This is a take-home slide, okay? So just like every procedure, it's all about proper positioning. Okay, and again, really simple, right? All over, now they're re really lining up, okay? Just very simple. Um, the idea, extend the head and flex the neck, but in recent literature, you don't need, you don't need to, uh, uh, you don't need to flex the, the neck, it's just extension of the head, okay? Make sure that there is no actually C-spine injuries. Midline stabilization, you guys do it all the time. If, from my personal humble experience, I'd love of people on the other side, because if you're, if you're doing an error, the last thing you need is another person. Pe a lot of people are comfortable with that, but I'm comfortable with this position, actually, right? Because somebody could, you could he could assess you with the cricoid pressure and all that, and you have this whole field to yourself. But if you're comfortable doing that, that's fine. But that's another thing to think about if you're intubating someone that needs the C-spine immobilized is you want to ask somebody before you start giving your drugs to be responsible for doing that immobilization for you. Okay, moving on. Next. Pre-treatment. Pre-treatment. So now, James, we're going to the pre-treatment. And, and the idea of pre-treatment is what? To block the reflex sympathetic response to laryngoscopy. RSR. Okay? So... Patient who, James, let me ask you this question. Pa patient with, let's say, dissecting aneurysm or something, the last thing you want is to intubate that patient and his pressure, whatever you're using for induction and, and, and paralysis, the last thing you want is to push up his blood pressure and, and, uh, and his heart rate, right? So treatment, the pre-treatment is basically the goal is to, to blunt the effect of the rise in uh, intracranial pressure and intraocular or intragastric pressure, right? And you blunt the, the secretion of catechol, uh, catecholamines, right? So it's ideally you do it two to three minutes before the induction. And what's another take-home slide? This is now four. I like we need probably six slides. <laughs> so the pre-treatment. This is the other P, right? Load. It's lidocaine, opioid, atropine, and defesiculation. And lidocaine, you guys do it all the time. Head trauma, right? Again, the literature doesn't support really well, but. You need to blunt, blunt that effective rise intracranial pressure. Opioids, people like, for example, James uh, dissecting aneurysm. You need to use that, for example. Atropine, uh, what's the atropine? Why do you use it? 
So secretion with what? With ketamine, right? So sometimes, you know, ketamine causes bronchial dilation, but it can increase secretion. So you really need to uh, to block that if you need to. But, it, but in this, yeah, in this case, um, there's controversy, and a, a lot of people are not using atropine with the ketamine because the you can handle the secretions. But I think in this case, they're looking more at the bradycardia, and as you pointed out, in kids, you have to be particularly concerned about bradycardia. Right now, the recent literature in kids actually, yeah, you use them with kids below ten or eight usually like pre-treat with atropine, but now they said it's actually benign if you watch it, unless you have the atropine ready, so you can shoot, but now it's, it's everybody's saying it's benign, even if you, well, what happened, Why, what's the bradycardia actually James, due to? The vagal. Once you, once you, um, you know, uh, actually try to intubate, you know, you're just doing vagal stimulation, basically. Okay, so induction agent. Now we're in the, to the induction agent, right? So, um, the inductions could be benzodiazepine, could be barbiturate, opioid, propofol, ketamine, or etomidate, right? Okay. Induction agent, what's the front end pharmacokinetics, right? So now you have the exact dose that you calculated for that patient, but now that patient is septic, is elderly, and all that. If you shoot that same same kind of calculation, once you intubate him, he might go, you know, he's, he's hypertensive, he's bleeding, so the volume distribution is going to be higher, even though you did the right calculation. So you just gotta watch for that. You might need some pressure, you might need some fluid, you need colloid like blood, just watch for that. So okay. what do you need to do after you intubate somebody? What's one of the first things you wanna check? Good. Vital signs, so post-intubation blood pressure. <coughs> Be very, very careful that you check a post-intubation blood pressure because you've given drugs and you've intubated and both of those things can cause the patient's blood pressure to drop. Exactly, and those patients like Vilosign, prior to intubation, probably it's all catecholamine release. The minute you calm everything down, his blood pressure and everything's gonna go uh, low. Now, so again, to the induction agent, we have sedative hypnotic, barbiturate is one of them, and now we just need to throw some um, case scenario. So barbiturate, you know, what the side effect mainly is hypertension, right? W uh, uh, what, when do you use acting barbiturate? When have you used it, guys? If I give you one, one scenario, select one scenario to, that use barbiturate. So in status epileptics. Status, okay, so what have you used? Used benzos, which is, right. you know, should work with or everything, right? Mm -hmm. And now you can stop it. What other alternative for status, for example? Propofol. Propofol, thank you. So if I tell you there is an alcoholic seizure and you use benzos and propofol and you, you can't stop it, then your next is? Barbs. barbs. And what else do you use barbs? Decorrugate, decelerate postures, okay? And oxygen. The only thing that can't stop it is barbs, okay? But watch for the, um, the blood pressure and all that, okay? The short acting uh, analgesics, they're supposed to uh, blunt the rise of the in, um, um, intracranial pressure. So suppose you have a multi trauma patient, say an auto head, and you suspected head injury and you had to intubate, but it was multiple trauma. Would barbiturates be a good choice for the induction agent? I'm seeing no. Why not? Okay, so if it were isolated head injury, the abs the answer would be absolutely yes because it blunts the the rise in intracranial pressure. But if you have a multi-trauma patient, even if they're not hypotensive, then you have to assume they may have internal injuries and be volume depleted and it can totally bottom out your blood pressure so it not be a good choice. Suppose you have that same patient, auto pet, multiple trauma, head injury and maybe pelvic fracture needs intubation and blood pressure is 60 and they're thrashing around, what would be a good induction agent? Okay, Tomidate is one and we can talk about that a little bit later. Ketamine. Ketamine. I think ketamine would be an excellent agent for that patient. Now some people would say, well you can't use ketamine in head injury, but what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you have head injury and you have lots of cerebral autoregulation? Low blood pressure, because you're de depending on your systemic mean arterial pressure to perfuse your brain, and ketamine will actually transiently increase your blood pressure. So you just have to sort of think about it, and yes, it may be listed as a contraindication, but if you have a more complicated scenario, it may be actually a good choice. Right, the data on this is actually, if you look at the data, forget the, what the recommendations are, because the recommendations are what goes. Right. 
So remember, push it slow. Two, the two commas probably complication of the emergency reaction. Where it's actually a PCP kind of, um, it's a female cyclone. So people will hallucinate, people will shout, people will do everything. So remember, you'll have two drugs that you can reverse atropine and, and uh, you know, for the uh, salivation and benzos for the emergency reaction, okay? Um, it actually rises the intracerebral intraocular pressure, but then again, there's not uh, strong evidence for that. Um, the, uh, as we said, you know, uh, if you administer it fast, this is what's going to happen. There is pretty depression. And you probably have a lot of secretion, uh, again, by atropine. You can, um, um, you know, easily um, clear that. Now, going to the opioid, and I want to give you an example right now. Um, fentanyl, right? What's the, what's the strength for fentanyl in comparison to morphine? 80. More 300 to 500 actually. So, this is fentanyl. So, if you think about something like uh, we'll talk about uh, um, other opioids, but fentanyl is like 300 more potent than the morphine. And then, if you talk about other agents like carfentanil, you know what carfentanil It's 10,000 to compare to morphine. So, what is fentanyl has been used? Let's say in 2002. You guys remember 2002. It was the Russian uh, theater attack. You guys remember that? 2002, no? You were born, come on. Where are <laughs> In Chechnya, exactly, exactly. So the Russian actually used it as a gas. And we're not sure uh, what happened was, it, you know, um, actually they killed the terrorists, but I think 15% of the people inside that theater died. And it was actually fentanyl. So and, and if they had recognized the toxidrome right away, of an opiate toxidrome, might have been able to save those people. Exactly. So this is actually another question. How would you, if somebody like really out of account, how can you tell if it's barbiturate, other agent, or opioid? So you have respiratory depression, you have cardiovascular, what's the distinctive about opioid? Fubal, thanks so much. So, hmm? I'm not sure about that, but that's... will die. Okay. That's the thing. Thanks, Michael. I didn't know that. But I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought all opioids is mainly, you know, pinpoint, and that's how you diagnose it. But anyway, this, if you remember this, fentanyl is like three to 500, I think 300. Uh, Surfentanil is like 2,000 two, two times, and 10,000 10, is the carfentanil. So morphine, you guys are really comfortable with that, right? But remember, if you push it fast, it's histamine release. And what happened? People have like kind of cardiac asthma, shortness of breath, they go flushed and all that. So remember, histamine release. Morphine is another drug that you don't want to push fast, okay? All right, and the reversal is naloxone, okay? All right, so opioid, other opioid that come into the market that, you know, they try to do, you know, if you do a, a short-acting opioid, you probably don't need a, a, a paralysis agent. So induction, so, but the problem is by the time the patient is really kind of comfortable, they're, they're hypotensive. So, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. So, short acting, they're good, but they're hypertensive, so you need paralysis agent. Etomidate, you guys comfortable with this, and the side effect, the common side effect? Adrenals. Mm -hmm. Adrenals, so what happened exactly? So let's say somebody who's been in sepsis for a few days at home comes in to you, and now you give them etomidate? Or somebody on steroids for a long time, mm -hmm. like a COPD, right? You probably had an adrenal suppression, and the minute you intubate with it, with etomidate without thinking of still on the floor in the ICU, you'll be hypotensive on pressure, and nobody will know why. Okay, so just remember that. Otherwise, healthy people will do just fine. And okay. this is one of those drugs like ketamine that sometimes gets a bad rap, both in the literature and through anecdotal rantings and ravings, where people get very emotional about it. And you know, there are some people who say you should never use this drug. It's terrible. It causes adrenal insufficiency. But the emergency medicine literature supports everything has a risk-benefit. But for a single dose in a, a patient where you're concerned, particularly about hypotension, that it's a very good drug. But you do need to remember if there's somebody at risk for adrenal insufficiency to, to consider that. But right there in the uh, resuscitation room, you know, as we know, because we use it all the time, it's very effective. Okay, and it, it actually protects your cerebral perfusion. Okay. All right, now we're going to the other P, which is paralysis. paralysis. So what type of paralysis you want to use, either deep paralysis. paralysis or 
Gandhi Prize, and everybody remembers this slide from medical school, right? Most of, <laughs> most of the agents, if anything, if there's one, one thing that you want to bid on is actually this enzyme, okay? All the organophosphate, all these, like, you know, sarin, nerve gas, all that. The, the whole story just happened in that uh, synopsis right here, okay? So, depolarizing, one agent, sucks, and you guys know it and use it all the time. The, um, the dose is like uh, 1 to 1.5, some people go up to 2. Okay, the last thing you want to underdose it because the minute you want to intubate, that patient is stiff. So you didn't do any good to yourself. Okay, so dose it probably either 1 to 1.5, some people dose 2 milligram uh, per kilogram. Okay, one thing you need to worry about if you have a history in the family of malignant hyperthermia, right? Well, obviously, if you have a patient that you don't have a history and you give suck, what happened if you, if this patient actually had a history of, you know, enzyme deficiency and you give him sucks and he ends up in melanin hyperthermia? Where are you going? Yeah, well, yeah, DIC and all that. So it's very difficult. So the minute, if, if you come across, if you remember one thing about this drug, right, if you come across a patient that ends up with, you know, tacky and febrile and changing uh, the color of the urine, right, you got to jump on this fat. Okay, Todd? You know, you gotta do type of cross, FFPs, blood, dantrolene, benzo, fluid, cold, probably renal. By that time, they probably go into multi-organ failure, but you need to catch it as soon as possible. If somebody, one of the families has a bracelet or tells you, well, we have another epidemic, do not use this drug. Other cases where you do not use this drug are interstage renal failure because it causes hyperkalemia. So interstage renal failure, right? What else? Intraocular pressure. What else? <coughs> 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 Everything, like neuromuscular disease. I have it here, right? So but a lot of these are really relative, relative contraindications. They're listed as absolute, but you know it's going to raise your potassium about 0.5 milliequivalents, your serum potassium, so if it's a patient that can't tolerate that, think about using another agent. Okay. Um, and again, prolonged paralysis, right? And these, like malignancy, lethal Lambert syndrome, organophosphate, and certain antibiotics, okay? Um, Non-depolarizing uh, medication. The things that you need to remember in the emergency room are probably rock and glycoronin, right? Do you guys use any of these? Rock. Rock, yeah. probably, right? So rock is very simple, one milligram per kilogram, right? Glycoronin uh, is 0.1, so this is how you remember. If you want to remember like, uh, sucks is 1.5, then this is uh, one, and this is 0.1. This is how you remember it. All the others are actually longer acting. This is you'll be using like in, in an anesthesia kind of setting, right? And all the others, right? Look at the onset of action. So when you push a paralytic agent, you want to wait until they're actually loose and you can assess that clinically. And it's not generally instantaneous. And with these non-depolarizing agents, although you can use a, a larger dose and get a slightly faster onset, it's longer than with succinylcholine. So you want to, as long as the patient is still uh, ventilating okay, you want to wait until you have optimal intubating conditions. And a minute is a long time when you're sitting there waiting to intubate someone. But if you try to go too soon and the jaw is still clenched and the cords are still moving, then you're going to have less chance of being su successful. Exactly. And when you choose any of these and drugs... One more comment. So, so the, and that goes back to the pre-oxygenation piece, which is you need to buy yourself enough time to allow the drugs to work. Yeah. Yeah, so, you, so some, some, sometimes you need that even two minutes, two and a half minutes in order for them to work uh, consistently. And a lot of the patients that we uh, use these drugs on are hypotensive, have poor perfusion, and the circulation times are prolonged. So, you know, if I gave any one of us uh, a milligram per kilogram of rock you might have intubating conditions in, you know, a minute. But you take somebody who's 60 or 40 with, you know, blood in his belly, and that might take two to three minutes. We tend to go much more quickly should, as Dr. Koenig said. The other thing is that part of this rapid sequence intubation protocol is once you push the drugs, you're not supposed to bag the patient because the idea is once they go flaccid or are going flaccid, if you bag them, you insufflate the stomach and increase your risk for regurgitation and aspiration. So we shouldn't be really bagging the patient after we push the drugs. That's the classic protocol. Now, we may violate that to some degree. Obviously, if the patient's going uh, hypoxic or we have not had a chance Pre-oxygenate them sufficiently prior to pushing the drugs. We may bend it, but the classic protocol is push drugs, stop bagging, 
and that's why we need the time. Mm. Yeah, thank you, because th that was one of the key points we wanted to bring up, because sometimes the respiratory therapists don't understand that. You've pre-oxygenated, and the idea is not to bag, and they just see the patient's not breathing, so they start bagging, and that's not what you want to do, because it blows up the stomach and increases the, the risk yeah, for aspiration. There's a significant yeah. caveat to that, and that is when you bag somebody, when you pre-oxygenate them, standard range, you've got three minutes, and that assumes what? That you've got a functional lung and a functional cardiac reserve. If you are hypotensive, if you have a significant cardiac and pulmonary contusion, you can fill that lung with 100% O2 in 30 seconds your SATs drop. Well, that, I was just going to add that. Obviously, if the SATs drop, you may need to bag, but ideally lungs are injured when there's serious problems with the function of the heart and lung system. In that situation, you don't bag them, they're all going to be hypoxic by the time the intubation continues, the intubation conditions are ready. You have to bag them. Yeah, well, you have all the risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cannot let their stats drop to 70 or 60% waiting for those conditions. That's the anesthesiologists don't understand that. And so that when you're in those situations, which doesn't happen very often, but they do happen, you've got to continue to bag the patient so that you have a patient that's worth intubating by the time the conditions are right. That's exactly right, and that's again why you need to look at the patient and look at all your monitors. One other oh. comment on pushing the drugs. Um, if you're going to use rock uranium, one thing I learned last year was uh, you can push the rock uranium before you push the sedative because it takes a long time for the rock, and just that extra amount of time to take the, I, the you know, your rock uranium syringe and then switching to your sedative. Um, the nurses will be like, wait, we're pushing the paralytic before we're pushing the sedative, but the sedative actually will probably come on at the same time as the paralytic. Okay, but so. the only thing with that, James, if I, might, if I may add, is actually you make sure that the sedation is ready. Because right. if you paralyze somebody and he's not sedated, you're literally suffocating somebody. Right. He's awake and he cannot breathe. So make sure that you have the sedative you know, side to side, okay? Yeah, but there's two different, that's a good point, there's two different scenarios. You never ever want to paralyze somebody without sedating them, if they have any kind of consciousness whatsoever. But if you're in one of these situations where the patient's really critical, and you need to intubate them right away, say you're using succinatomidate, remember the sucks is probably going to take at least 45 seconds, and they're totally unconscious, unresponsive, let's say clenched down, you can push the sucks first, immediately followed by the automidate or whatever induction agent you use, and it, and it would do it that way. But you don't want to do it in somebody who's awake because it's horrible to feel like you can't breathe but not be sedated. Just remember that, okay? All right, so now we're coming to protection. So um, maybe going back to Dr. Schultz, if, if you actually you know sedate or paralyze somebody and now you couldn't get the tube, so make sure you have you know the cellular maneuver, you have the burp, backwards, so you're pushing back to the spine, right, upwards and rightwards. Why rightwards? Because the esophagus is a little bit to the right side, at least, um, you know, this is part of the literature. Um, and this is a technique, I'm not sure if it's projecting well, right? And this is what you need to do, right? So backwards, verb. So backwards, right? And then upwards, so you push it up, and then rightwards. So suppose this is the, the, the spine, so what, what you need to do is actually, you need to capture the esophagus to reduce the chances for aspiration. And you know, um, probably some of the some of you have other people doing the you know the, the crack pressure. Sometimes it can give you difficulty to do the cords. So make sure also to manipulate that, you know, whoever you your assistant to look at the cords because you're doing the intubation. Okay? All right. And so you now can actually I don't know if you're gonna get to this, but you can actually um, do the cricoid pressure yourself and then have the other person that's helping you say, put your fingers right exactly there, hold it right there, so that you can look in and adjust it to where you need it. Exactly. Uh, the cricoid pressure has become very controversial, and some people are saying that uh, we no longer should be doing it. It used to be, oh, you've got to do cricoid pressure. But even if you don't do it for airway protection, as we used to say, it can be very, very helpful in terms of positioning and getting those cords into place. And those of you who have intubated with me, I'll always say, do you want more, do you want less, do you want a different direction? Because that can just make those cords pop into place for you. So it can be a helpful technique. Okay. Why is it contraindicated? Why is it just a problem? Who would what time? Like, I mean, is it just like, mm. the no, I didn't say contraindicated. I said not. Oh, 
indicated. Um, it it would, could be contraindicated if you continue to hold it when somebody is um, still actually awake. vomiting. Or still awake, you can only use one. So um, maybe one of the other ones, now you're intubating, you want to make sure the tube is in. So number one is what? You actually visualize the tube going through the cord. And this is probably the most reliable everything, okay? So you can, that's why, you know, your attending will say, did you see the cord? Do you see them? And then the minute you pass it, you know, I passed through the cord, okay? And if, and if you're the person doing the cricoid, you can feel it when the cord exactly. goes through the tube. You can feel the tube. tube goes through the cord. Okay. Yeah. One of the other ones, probably, once you intubate, what are you looking for? Medical solution. Anybody? Mm -hmm. You want to listen. Yeah, five areas you want to look for the mess. You have the capnomical, you may have the pulse ox, you have the entitled CO2. All these combined together to make sure that you're, uh, and obviously, <coughs> the chest rise. Okay? All right. So, one other thing, just a quick ultrasound, right? And you can look at the, the, the trachea and the tubes going in. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll ask the, uh, is that the pulse ox? No? Okay. But that's, that's one thing to do. What we did in Haiti, we had a patient who had a thyroid, uh, huge thyroid mass. He came in with striga. So we're talking about, you know, if you really desaturate something, we got a cricoid. But the thing, we throw the probe and his error was right here. So the thing, if, if you want a cricoid, you're going to go through that thyroid. The thyroid is really a bloody vascular object. You're going to bleed him to death. So take it, <laughs> throw an ultrasound, see where you're at, okay? All right. Okay. So, Eric? Yeah. Almost intubation management, right? This is right. The, our, our last B, right? So <laughs> chest x-ray, chest x-ray, chest x-ray, fluid labs. Um, you know, this is a trauma patient, obviously, you know, NGOG tube, urinary your, cath and all that, right? Now, two other things. Now, you intubated somebody with a sedation and, and a paralytic. You want to have maintenance, too. The last thing you want, in a few seconds, that patient is biting mm -hmm. in the tube, probably waking up and pulling the tube, it's a disaster. Okay. So this is something I'm always harping on you guys. You're getting, you know, it's all exciting. You're going to intubate, and it's and the patient's thrashing around. And let's think about it. We're using an induction drug that lasts five minutes. What's going to happen after that five minutes? They're going to be intubated, but they're still going to be wake up thrashing around. So you need to anticipate that remember, and decide guys. what am I going to sedate the person with after I've secured that tube and have your team, your nurses, get that medication, whether it's propofol, versed, whatever you're going to use. Make sure you check your blood pressure post-intubation before you give it. But you need to prepare that. I would actually put that way back under the, the prepare key ahead of time so that it's not, oh, all of a sudden they're pulling out the tube and I don't have anything going. Okay. How common is this um, when they when we have to redose like paralytics, this uh, peripheral neuropathy afterward that I've heard about? Afterward, that's what I've heard in the, the ICU. There's this neuropathy. Yeah, I know our, our ED links of stay are getting longer, but I don't think they've gotten that long yet. No, where you repeat the dose yeah. of neuromuscular blocking agent right. afterwards. This is post, they've got extubated. Okay. There's this idea of a neuropathy that develops due to the multiple dosing of paralytics. Well, it depends. Remember, if you're using like, something like socks or short acting, right? And somebody who ha doesn't have any, you know, underlying disease. But if somebody has, you know, neuromuscular, if somebody has, you know, spinal cord injury, if somebody has like, uh, you know, uh, rhabdo or something, they might take longer for sure. Um, but and it can take longer to extubate. I mean, there is a thought that post intubation, we would prefer not to paralyze and right. to just sedate the patient if at all possible. Also, if you want to do serial neurologic exams. So unless it depends they're on just, the case. you know, there's no other way to, to sedate them because they're too hypotensive or whatever, um, I try to avoid post-intubation paralytics. So Eric, the answer to your question is I've not heard of a post-intubation, post-depolarizing blocker multiple dose neuropathy problem. Okay. So I ask whoever's talking about that yeah. to give us a or maybe they you've saturated all their receptors and that's they need probably a longer time. I'm well, not it's sure. about repeat dosing this neuromuscular blocker. I don't know. So, so it yeah, exists right. in the literature, but it's mainly for prolonged paralytics, paralytics. Right. especially when you have to with keep giving it. who's an asthmatic that you want to completely paralyze them and have them on a bed. It's rare, but it's it's in the literature. Right. Okay. So you don't think it's, it's not our that. problem. Not no. Our no, I know it's not so a problem. So, part of the Part of the post-intubation management, again, these are the basic settings, but remember, if you're, you know, if somebody is healthy and you put them in oxygen, and you probably need maybe like 50 or 40, 
percent to start with, or somebody who has trauma or ARDS, you probably need lower. So, uh, or somebody who has like asthma or COPD, you don't want to go higher on the sure. So, just make your judgment when you select your basic settings, okay? And remember, you need to check the post intubation x ray, make sure you communicate with the family really well, okay? Uh, uh, just let me just make a point. I've seen many of our residents intubate the patient and not check the chest x ray. You pass that too, that is your chest x ray, nobody else. You guys all hear that, right? Yes. So, post intubation, you have to check your stuff yourself. You did that intubation, you have to check that chest x ray. Part of the procedure. Exactly, and document that actually. Okay. Now, if we go back to the same scenario, and now that patient, you know, sedated and everything, but now the machine is beeping or he's desaturated, right? So what do you do? Remember, this is the fifth slide, dope, right? Remember this mnemonic, dislodge tube, obstruction, and most of the time it's actually mucus blood, so make sure you aspirate, right? Pneumothorax, obviously, you know, examine, and check for that, and then equipment therapy. And the, the way you, you, how do you check for equipment therapy? You disconnect, you bag the patient, and you check your equipment. And also, something like this happens, just go back to your ABCs. And one thing, I, I saw this recently, the oxygen was turned off. As soon as we turned it back on, the patient was saturating just fine again. So go back to your basic ABCs and check everything from the exactly. beginning. And this is all what you need to remember. Yo, okay? Dislike tube, obstruction, pneumonia, and equipment failure. Okay? And if you fail to intubate, obviously, you know, you have to have all the backups, you know, the bougie and surgical airway and glidoscope, whatever you have, uh, you know, uh, resources at your hand. There's one more thing I wanted to add on, you can go to the last slide. Oh, all right. That, you want, that I wanted to add on the um, positioning. You know, we, we're seeing more and more obese patients. What can you do for positioning on an obese patient that might save you and make you be able to get the tube? Towel between their shoulder blades. So they sell these really fancy thing, pillow things you can put them on, but of course we don't have that. So if you just put something under the shoulder, like a towel or a blanket or something like that, you can often reposition them so that you can see the airway. Another thing is sometimes um, people will desaturate if you lie them down. You might have to intubate them sitting up, particularly obese patients. So this is something to be aware of as we're seeing more and more of this. Really, really go back to your positioning and get everything set up to optimize your chances of being successful. Okay. Let me go back to the, to the positioning for the obese patient. So there was a Journal Club article last month, you may remember, you all should have read it, about quote, ramping it up. And they had a picture of a, of a 500 pound patient in the proper position for being for endocrine intubation. And there was not just something under her shoulders, but she was literally multiple, maybe 10, 15 blankets, ramping her up to almost a 30 degree position. And when that was all done, the whole head came up uh, anteriorly and the patient became in a sniffing position. Whereas they didn't have a diagram of her supine, but you can imagine that there would, there would be no neck and no way to intubate her supine. Exactly. So it's not just a couple of towels, it's 10, 15, 20 towels, blankets all the way under her shoulder, starting in her mid back, escalating to her shoulders and finishing with her neck. Or you can buy the device that's shaped like that. It's a real brand <laughs> with you know, tons of linen, not just a couple of towels. So whatever it takes to make that oral, pharyngeal, uh, laryngeal, all those, the picture, exactly, lined up as, as simple as possible, okay? So, and this is the take home slide, guys, if you, if, you were, if you were asleep or something, this is what you need to remember, okay? Prepare and position and pre-oxygenate, go together. Pre-treatment if you need to, okay? Load, lidocaine, you guys remember? Ding, load, lidocaine, mm -hmm. atropine, defesiculation, and opium. Opium, thank you. And then paralysis and induction, induction with, you know, um, the, you know, propofol, phenobar, benzos, and stuff, and with paralysis, depolarizing or non-depolarizing, protection, and then proof of replacement, and then post-management, okay? What's new? Um, uh, medics is actually uh, if you push a non depolarizing so no, it's not for sucks, it's for non depolarizing It's actually the ones that last longer. Yeah, and this is mainly for bacuronium, right? But it, it, it can be used for back and bacuronium, okay? So it actually can reverse. So if you can't bag a patient and you push a non depolarizing, you paralyze that patient, you can use um, the medics, okay? Any questions?